Good morning. I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Colossians. And if you are like me, you, you learned Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians by go eat popcorn, and then comes Colossians. I'm the only one, and somebody else has had to have learned that. Raise your hand. I'm the only one that learned my Bible that way. Okay, so it's go eat popcorn, then Colossians. And uh, it's funny how some mnemonic things stick with you forever, and that is one of the ones that uh, every time I think of Galatians, Ephesians, or Philippians, it's go eat popcorn. All right, so now you've heard it. Hopefully it'll stick, and I won't be the only one. This morning, we're going to begin a new series from the book of Colossians. Um, we, we try to go regularly, uh, verse by verse, through the Bible. Sometimes we do that in chunks, like we just did as we looked at um, chapter 11 of Luke, about Jesus talking about prayer. So we went through a section, but as, as a small chunk. Um, what we're going to do over the next few weeks, really kind of the bulk of this year, is we're going to dedicate ourselves to the study of the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. And so this morning I want to share with you the introduction, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about this book, but um, I'm really excited about sharing this book with you because uh, it's kind of unique in Paul's letters. Yes, it's very doctrinal. It's also very practical. Paul uh, writes that way very often. The first half is, is, uh, is often doctrine and setting up uh, the right thinking, followed by the second half of the books, which is right living. Um, that's a very common way that, that Paul writes. But Colossians is extremely, uh, extremely amazing because it's the most... Um, Christ-centered of all of Paul's writings. And I don't say that to mean that in some ways Paul doesn't write Christ-centered, but, but it highlights who Jesus is. And it not only highlights who Jesus is, but it highlights who we are in Jesus. So we're going to see this phrase in Christ over and over and over again as we look through Colossians. This morning, I want us to just look at the introduction here, the greeting, the first two verses. Uh, Allow me to to read this uh, for us. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a revelation of yourself and from yourself by which we may see ourselves. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to hear, receive, understand, and apply your word to our lives. Lord, this morning, may we consider what it means to be in Christ and in Titusville. Lord, we pray for your Spirit now to work among us. Would you enable us to understand and apply your Word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, for how many people here... Is Titusville the smallest town you've ever lived in? A couple, okay? Titusville's the smallest town that you've ever lived in. For how many is Titusville the largest town that you've lived in? A couple, 
A couple. Titusville is the largest town. I am, I am not, uh, I grew up in Kansas City, so I grew up in, in a large town. My wife and Elwin actually grew up in the same town. Not at the same time, but they're both from a little tiny town in Georgia. So we come from very different perspectives when it comes to the, the size of the town or, or the city that you live in. Uh, we have lived in some small towns. Um, we have lived all over, and we have lived in some small towns. We've lived in some very remote towns. And, uh, and so I was, I was thinking about and reading about some characteristics of a small town. And so it says, you, you know you live in a small town when you didn't have to tell your doctor your family history because he knew it firsthand. Um, you, you know you live in a small town when, if you had an overdue library book, you got a personal visit from the librarian. Um, you knew you were from a small town when your teachers knew before you took the class, they knew you before you took the class because they had already taught your brothers and sisters and maybe even your parents. Um, the football coach was also the wrestling coach, math teacher, and athletic director. Um, a, a funny story about a small town that, that just floored me when I was young. I was, I was 18, I was, I was graduating high school, and I played in a rugby tournament in Silob Springs, Arkansas. And I went, to go get, I went to go get gas, and they said, go across the state line into Oklahoma to get gas because it's cheaper there because of the taxes. And so I went, and I got pulled over. Um, I think it was like a, a taillight, and my insurance card wasn't valid. It was, it was, it was a nothing thing. It ended up, I, I, it ended up it, just send in the right things, and, and the ticket would be, get dismissed. Well, I did that. And then a few years later, I got a warrant for my arrest from West Siloam Springs, Oklahoma. I've only been to this town one time in my life, and I am, I'm freaked out. You know, they, they sent my arrest warrant to my seminary P.O. box. I'm thinking, I'm thinking they're going to come into theology class and arrest me. I don't know what's going on. And so I, 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 I call uh, the, the West Siloam Springs Police Department. And I said, we got to get this straightened out. I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a seminary student. I, I, I can't have a, a warrant for my arrest. I'll never get a job in a church. I mean, I'm, I'm like really freaked out over this. And, uh, and the lady says, well, you're going to have to call back on Wednesday to talk with the judge because he's only part-time. <laughs> That's a small town. That is a small town. I, I say all of this because as we look to the letter written to the Colossians, Colossae was a small town. It was a small town. It was an insignificant town. It was 100 miles east of Ephesus, which was uh, the large epicenter for the region. We've talked about Ephesus some over the last few months. And so Colossae is a small town. It used to be that the trade route was through the town, much like if you, if you ever travel uh, across the United States, across Route 66, Right? You see all these gas stations and all these old run-down businesses. And, you know, it used to be something amazing. It was the, it was the highway. It was the only way to get somewhere. And now it's, it's bypassed. Colossae was much like that. It was a bypassed town. It was a town that had been dwindling for some time. It was insignificant. One, com- one commentator writes, Without a doubt, Colossae is the least important church to which Paul ever addresses. It's interesting, you know, um, here's this small, insignificant town, but yet the gospel matters so much in that community. 
that Paul, who has many demands on his time, takes the time to write this letter, this beautiful letter about Jesus, about uh, the incomparableness of Jesus, about our foundation in Jesus, about how we, what we believe about Jesus touches and influences all of our life. He took this time to, to write this. You know, today we, we suffer with this uh, big church mentality in Christianity where we look at small churches often and think, oh, they're so insignificant. Maybe we look at churches that at one time were quite prominent. Maybe they are like the little towns on Route 66 where the highways moved and the population's gone and there's just a few believers there. Let us not think that their testimony for Jesus, their lives for Jesus is any less significant than ours. They deserve our prayers, our attention, our love, and our support as much as we can help with. And so Paul writes to this small town here in Colossae, and, and you ask, well, why would he be writing there? Well, this small-town church had some big-time problems. They had some big-time problems. It, it seems as though, from what we can read, is that false teachers had come into the church, a young church. They had, had come in and began to spread false teaching that was becoming very prominent among the brothers there at the church. Some things that we know about Colossae, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction since we're going to spend some time in this book. Paul never visited the church. Paul himself never went to this church. Um, a, a disciple of Paul's went to the church, Epaphras, and, and he started the church. We know this because we can read through Acts and we can read about the, the, the individuals that are moving around from the church. That's an amazing thing about the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, if you're a first century reader getting the book of Acts, you ever thought about all the names of the people that it has? It means you can go track them down. It's factual, right? They, you, can, you can know, you can see who this is, you can track them down. And so we know about the starting of this church. And, and Paul writes, he writes here in Colossians and says that he hasn't been there yet to visit them. And so um, we, we see that there's this false teaching and we don't know exactly what it is. Um, commentators refer to it as the, uh, the, the, the Colossians heresy. Um, we don't know exactly what it is. It's kind of like reading a, a piece of mail when you're not in part of the conversation and you just read the one side of the story. What we can put together is that there was a number of things that seem to have been uh, being taught falsely at the church in Colossae. Um, let me highlight a few of those. First and foremost is that there's a strong uh, Jewish ascetic element. Asceticism is the belief that to be holy, you have to deny yourselves of something. So if you really want to be holy, you cut out something that you eat, or you cut out something that you do, or you cut out something that you have. And so there is this teaching that Jesus is not enough. You have to do something extra to show yourself extra holy in Colossae. Another thing that we can see is that there's this idea of deeper wisdom or deeper knowledge. Paul writes in chapter 2 of verse 8, and he counters this saying, all, uh, it, that in Christ all things are hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge in Jesus we find all wisdom, all knowledge. There's no outside source that's going to call us and bring us into a deeper knowledge. And for some of us, it might sound silly, but 
You rarely will find a cult today, if you study it, that doesn't promise to offer some kind of a a deeper knowledge, a secret book, a secret knowledge, another, another book written by the apostle that the church doesn't know. Those are the kinds of things that can be tempting still, too, to, to Christians to lead them astray even today. Colossians is going to write and say, if we have this, if we have Jesus, we have enough. If we have His Word, we have all that God has given us and requires of us to live lives of, of godliness and faithfulness because everything is found in Christ. Another thing that is emphasized here is there's an overemphasis of angels. We see this also in Hebrews, that the early church struggled coming out of their Jewish background with cultural um, ideas about angels and their importance. And the Bible tells us that angels are, are true. There are angels. Angels are, are servants of God. Angels are present. But here, Paul is going to write very strongly that Jesus is far superior than any angelic being, much as like what we read in Hebrews. All of these kind of mix together to form this synchronism, this, this cultural and ethical and, and uh, local false teaching that's going on that Paul writes to correct. And as much as we might not be dealing with these individual elements, the important thing for us as we look through the book of Colossians, and I would encourage you to read it, read through it once a week if you could, as we study through this, to familiarize yourself with it and with the story and with the topics and and with all the things that Christ is, is shown to be better than and how we're in Christ. What this shows us is even if we're not dealing with these individual elements, being in Christ is our basis for salvation. It is our everything. Your life in Christ is the definition of your life if you're a Christian. We all try to find things to uh, define our lives to be, right? So maybe you're uh, a biker. Maybe you're, you know, maybe it's your occupation. You're a banker. I got to come up with another B. I'm doing this on the fly. (laughs) Barber. I don't know. But we all find things, right, that we would identify and, and we might tag on to our lives and say, I'm this and this. As a Christian, we should see that the center of everything in our life is that we are in Christ. That's what Paul is writing here to say. Let me, let me make three more quick observations before we look at these two verses this morning. The first observation is, as you think about this and you think about this book and the, and the context of it, is this. Uh, Paul is, is writing this letter to the Colossians, which is a very deep theological letter talking about Jesus and who He is and, and His nature and His being and His excellency. And he's writing this to individuals. He's not writing this to seminary professors. He's not writing this for for people to analyze it. He's writing this to a church of young believers. They'd probably only been Christians for five years. And he's writing it to them. Many of them cannot read. They're, They're hearing it and memorizing it. And I say that because so often Christians today don't read anything of any depth. We often tend to want to avoid theology. We want to avoid anything of any depth. We want the light and fluffy, all-application type things. You're not, you're not too young in your faith to read that, 
to go deep, to learn about who God is. Uh, Paul writes this letter to these young Christians in this small town, and he tells them the depth of Christ and the depth of their lives in Christ. He wants them to go deeper with Jesus because it matters in how they live their life. Friends, we need to go deeper with Jesus. Uh, a, second, uh, a second thing here is that as we read this, we're going to find that right theology is the basis for right living. What we believe affects how we live. What we believe affects how we live. That's the way that Paul writes most of his letters, and especially here in the Colossians. He wants, to, uh, he wants to correct things that are happening in the church, how they're living, and he does it by correcting what they are believing. What we believe matters. The third thing that I want us to, to see kind of as an overview here is that uh, theology should be answered by the question, where does it put Jesus? Because theological arguments and theological constructs that make little of Jesus or emphasize humanity are not the way that the Bible argues. Everything relates back to Jesus. Where does it place Jesus? Where is Jesus in this? Is he the center of this? It's an important question for us to ask. So this morning, I want us to look at verses 1 and 2. And from that, I want to make two points. Two points. The first is that God has equipped His church in Christ, and He has done so that we might be His church in Titusville. And, and I get that from this opening where it says, it says, to the saints and faithful, faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. We can read this in one sense and say, to the faithful in Christ in Titusville. So the first thing I want us to see is that God has equipped His church. He has equipped us in Christ. Before we can think about doing ministry, we have to find our foundation and, and who we are and how God has equipped us and put us together and what He has called us to do. And that's centered in, in what Paul writes here and says, in Christ. And God has equipped His church. There's, there's a few ways here in this text that we can see this. The first is that God gave apostles to His church. God gave apostles to his church. In the first verse we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And that's an important phrase. There's a lot loaded in there. The Bible talks about apostles, and there's two ways in which the Bible talks about apostles. The first sense in which the Bible talks about apostles is a lesser sense. And that's the idea of just a messenger. And so there's a, a few individuals in the Bible that are called apostles. The, the Greek word is apostle, but they are not the same as what we think of as when we think of the apostles, right? Kind of like a, a capital A apostle and a lowercase a apostle. And so in one sense, it's rightly so that you can call an individual an apostle that's sent out from the church to do a job. So when we send a missionary out, in one sense, they're an apostle of the church. But in the other sense, the way that we most of the time think about it is the capital A apostle. Those individuals that uh, were called specifically by Jesus, Jesus showed himself to for the establishment and the teaching of the church. So we have the twelve. And then after that, we have Paul. 
And Paul's going to write here, this is very important what Paul says. Paul says, I am an apostle, what? Of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so what he means by this is, is if you go back, did, did, uh, did, did Paul ever meet Jesus before Damascus face to face? No. But what we have is Jesus reveals himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. He calls him as an apostle. And so, so Paul writes to defend this through many of his letters. He says, I am an apostle called by Jesus Christ. He's writing to say, I'm not a lesser apostle than the, than the other apostles. I am the same. I am an apostle. And it's very important that God gave us apostles because the apostles of the church are the ones primarily who God worked through for the establishment of the new covenant, for the establishment of the church that we know, that we understand. You know what one of the most important things the apostles have left for us is? Right here. The Word of God. The, the, the New Testament, every book in the New Testament is either written by an apostle or it's written by an individual that's very close to an apostle. So I'll give you an example. Mark, the gospel account of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Anybody remember it like that? All right. Mark was not an apostle. But church history tells us that Mark we, we can see through the Bible, Mark traveled with Paul on missionary journeys. He was part of the church. He was familiar with the rest of the church. Uh, church history tells us that Mark, in his last days, was Peter's secretary. In fact, the early church, we have, we have indications, uh, writings that call the gospel of Mark, what we would call the gospel of Mark, as the letters, the memoirs of Peter. So when we read through Mark... No, Mark wasn't an apostle, but he was very close to the apostle, so much so that the early church gives us the indication that this is probably, when we read in Mark, much of Peter's memories of being with Christ. And so it's very important that, that God has given us apostles, that he has equipped the church with apostles. And because of the nature of, of the, the apostolic role and that apostles have to uh, have seen and been with Jesus, we don't believe, as, as some denominations might, that there is a, a continuing um, apostolic role of the same authority as the, as the, uh, as the early church. We don't, we don't believe that that is still the case, but we do believe that the words of the apostles are authoritative and that the words of the apostles are true and the words of the apostles are preserved in the Bible. That's an amen point, right? We have God's Word. We have the apostles to equip and to teach the church because we have the Word of God. And, and so the first thing we see here is that God has equipped His church. He has sent apostles. Uh, the second way that God has equipped His church is He has called us out into a family of Christ. He's called us together to be a family of Christ. And you see a, a hint of that in the opening of this letter. Just in the, the very few words, look at the, look at the familiar terms. Look at, look at the, the closeness here as Paul's writing again to a church that is struggling in a small little town. He's writing to them. He's never been with them. He's, he doesn't know them <coughs> personally. He just knows of their testimony. And, and listen to what he writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So here's our, here's our first 
uh, family type thing to the saints, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And so here is a truth that we can draw from this text just looking at this opening, and that is the church, the faithful believers, as Paul writes here, are not only individuals, but they're gathered together within a family. They're gathered together within a family where so we can call each other brother and sister rightfully. We are in Christ. We are also, in a sense, in each other because we are in a family. And I've stressed this over and over again in, in different ways, but you know, the truth of it is, is we can relate to God as our Father, and we can relate to each other as our brothers and sisters because we have been adopted We have been adopted into the family of God. Just as though if you were an orphan and a family came and they adopted you, you are now part of that family. And we might falsely, sometimes we look at adoption as though it's a lesser, it's a lesser thing. Well, they're your biological children and that's your adopted child, right? But that's not the truth of it. The truth of adoption, legally, the truth of adoption is that when a child is adopted, they have the full rights and privileges of any birth-given child that you have. And so it is when we come into the family of God, we are adopted as brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't live this out, right? I've stressed this before. We don't live this out enough. What what would it mean if we actually regarded each other as brother and sister in Christ, as, as family of God, that because you believe in Jesus... You are my family. Jesus, his, his own mother and brothers come to him in the Gospels. I believe it's in Mark 4. And they say to him, they say, uh, they say the, the disciples come and they say, your mother and your brothers are here. And the text tells us that they're coming to take Jesus away quietly. And Jesus responds with something that's, that's just fascinating. Jesus responds and says, I tell you the truth, the ones who are truly my mother and brothers are the ones who do the will of God. It's a profound statement, isn't it? There's a sense in which if all your family rejects Jesus, your true family are the ones that are with you in the church. It doesn't mean that that there's no relations, there's no responsibility, there's no tie to your your biological family. But the point of it is is that we, we, we want to say that God is our Father for real right? If we believe in him and we're saved, we want to say, yes, God is literally my father. He loves me. He cares for me. He takes care of me. My relationship to him is relationship to a good father. Then at the same time, because of the nature of adoption, we need to say that other believer is my brother, is my sister. And that changes things. That changes the way we relate to each other. We love each other. We serve each other within the church. And so God has set set apart the church and and given it not only uh, apostles. He has given us a family support system. He's he's given us each other. We're called the saints here in this text. Some of your your, um, versions might translate this holy. The, the holy brother, the holy and faithful brothers, the saints. We, we, we hear this word saints. Holy just basically means saint. 
and it, this is a word that, because of some traditions, has been uh, kind of uh, captured. And when we think of a saint, we think of only certain super holy individuals. That's not the way the Bible writes about it. The Bible writes about it and says that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who has been saved by Christ, is a saint, is a believer, is faithful, is holy, is set apart by God. Paul writes and says here to the Colossians, he calls them faithful brethren. Faithful brethren. It's really interesting, this word that he uses for faithful. Um, this is the only place that Paul uses it. And so commentaries, you know, give all kinds of words to, to, to try to explain what this means as faithful. And I think, I think the best understanding is, is Paul's writing to the Colossians in this church that's struggling, in this church where false teaching has taken over, where people are abandoning the gospel and adding to it, they're saying, yeah, Jesus is your introduction, but if you want to really live for Him, if you really want to be saved, then you have to do fill in the blank. Paul's writing to this small remnant within this church that says, you faithful, you, you brothers who are remaining faithful, you who, who haven't given in to this false teaching, you who have trusted alone in Jesus Christ and are holding on to that alone for your salvation, and friends, that's the, the basis of what salvation is. Should we have a desire for holiness? Absolutely. Should we have a conscience that maybe says uh, this? The, the Bible might not explicitly say this is wrong, but for me, I don't want to partake in this. Yes, the Holy Spirit can reveal those things to us. Should we have a desire? Should we continually be seeing sin in our lives? Be uh, The Word of God, as we read it, shows us, eh, this isn't right, and say, I want to change that. Yes, that should be a part. But at the end of the day, we say, I am saved not because of what I am doing, but because of what Jesus did for me. Yeah. Right? The only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that needs forgiven. Salvation is found in Christ and our trust and obedience to Him. It's not Jesus plus fill in the blank. It's Jesus alone. Yeah. And that's a big emphasis that Paul will make all throughout this letter as we look at it. So we've been equipped by, the church has been equipped by God giving us apostles, by God calling us together in a family. Uh, the other way that, that we have been equipped is that God relates to us in grace and peace. In grace and peace. And this is an amazing thing. Grace, remember, means unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor towards us. That though we are sinners, we've broken God's law, we've disobeyed Him, we're deserving of punishment, God instead looks upon us with grace. He forgives us. He makes possible our salvation. He makes possible for us to come and to experience grace in Jesus Christ. Friends, that's, that's an amazing statement. Uh, Romans chapter 5 talks about the fact that at one time we were at enmity with God, not anonymity, enmity. We were God's enemies because of our sin. But that God made a way for us to be saved. I think of that great passage in Romans chapter 3, one of my favorite in all the Bible that says, God. Jesus came forth at the right time so that God could be just and the justifier. 
so that God could say sin is real, sin is wrong, sin deserves punishment. But here is a way that sin can be punished and people can be forgiven. And that's Jesus. As Jesus is on the cross, he's not just suffering pain. Oh, there was pain. But as Jesus is on the cross, he is bearing the weight of my sin and your sin and our sin upon himself as God is punishing Jesus that which we deserve. Do you believe this? Have you experienced this? Does this make you want to serve him? See, we have a couple of reactions when we think about this, when we think about the atonement of Christ on our behalf. We can say, eh, my sin really doesn't matter. I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as. We can always point to somebody else, right? But the problem is you're not measured according to that person, whoever is in mind that's worse than you. You're measured according to Jesus. And you have sinned. Have you trusted in Him to save you? Have you trusted in Him to save you? If you have, God relates to us in grace. Not only grace, but it says peace. This is a traditional greeting within the Jewish world, shalom, peace. But that God could have grace, unmerited favor with sinners and relate to them and love them in peace. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? That is amazing. And so God has, God has, God relates to us in grace and peace. This is another way that He has equipped His church so that we can serve Him, so that we, we have His favor upon us. But that's not all. That's not all that, that Paul writes. Paul writes and says that God has equipped His church in Christ. He has, he has uh, called them in Christ, and He has done these things to Him. He gave them apostles. He put them into a family. He relates to them now in grace and peace. But He puts them somewhere. That's the second point I want us to see, is that God has equipped us to be His church in Titusville. As Paul writes and says, to the church in Christ in Colossae, so we could write and see ourselves getting a letter saying to the church in Christ in Titusville. If you, uh, if you were here on Sunday nights, a few weeks ago, we went through the high priestly prayer of John 17. If you don't come on Sunday nights, I would encourage you to. It is, uh, if, if you come on Sunday nights, why don't you encourage someone else to come? Everybody who comes on Sunday nights, I always hear how much they love it. It's more of a teaching than preaching, and everybody always walks away saying that they, that they like it. At least that's what they tell me. But I would encourage you to, to try to come to continue to learn more about Christ if you can. And so we looked at John 17, and, and this is an amazing thing. You know, Jesus, Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to go. And so the, the question is, can we go with you? Right? What do we do? And he writes this. He says, I ask, he, Jesus praying on our behalf says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If you have sent me into the world, so I also have sent them into the world. Friends, that's why we're here. Do you get that? 
We remain, even though we are in Christ, even though we have, we have come to this glorious salvation, we have uh, understood and confessed Jesus as our Lord, we seek to follow Him and love Him and, and, and live for Him, and we remain in this broken world full of sin. And the reason is not so that we can start a social club and avoid all the bad people out there. The point of it is, is that we have remained that we might be His witnesses. Jesus himself isn't walking the earth right now. But he's walking through his people. We are to be in Christ in Titusville. That's where God's put us. He has put us here. I I would hope that we would begin to to pray and think about that, to, to think about what does it mean that our church is here. Our church is here not just to have a big fancy steeple. And we do have a nice, great steeple. I'll give you that. It's beautiful. You look all over downtown and the steeple is gorgeous. But the steeple doesn't bring people to Jesus. It's the witness of the people in the pews being willing to do the work of the ministry together, to support the work of the ministry, to to minister on their own, to to make relationships, to enter into gospel conversations with others, to look at the world and its brokenness and say, turn to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. You know, Titusville claims to be the gateway to space and nature. Here at First Baptist Church, we need to remember that we're the gateway to heaven. That the message that we proclaim, I'm not saying we're the only gateway to heaven, now hear me out. But the message that we, we, we proclaim and the other churches of Titusville that proclaim the gospel, that message is the only gateway for salvation. It is the only gateway to come into a right relationship with God. That's why we're here. We're here not just to be in Christ. You're not saved just for your own self-improvement. No, we should be improving. We should be becoming more like Jesus as part of sanctification. But being more like Jesus means we're living more for Jesus. And part of that is serving and loving others where God has you. And God has us here in Titusville. What an incredible Uh, responsibility, and what an incredible legacy that we follow. This church is in its 129th year this year, loving the people of Titusville. I pray that as we look through this book, as we think about this message today, that God God would put in our hearts a desire to continue to love this community, to love these people, to find ways, to think about ways to proclaim and to be the church here in Titusville, the church that for on this corner over a hundred years has been a place where the community could come and to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to be forgiven and how to live for Him, how to be a part of a family. And the, the pews that you sit in Many, many people have sat there before you. They have been in this place. They have heard the good news. They have come. They have responded. They have served. They have been sent out all over the world from the place where you sit. Literally. People have been sent all over the world to proclaim the good news. Because we are in Christ and in Titusville. Amen? May we... 
think about that not just as a legacy, but a call to action. You know, it's interesting if you continue to read about this church. It's not directly written to, but when Paul writes, or when when, uh, Peter writes to John, sorry, John writes, I knew I was off, when John writes to the church of Laodicea in Revelation, we, we looked at those passages This is a church that was very close to that. It's within the the reach of that. It probably was included within that letter. And he warns them, maybe 30 years later, after Paul is writing to them, that Jesus was about to spew them out of their mouth because of their spiritual lukewarmness. We need to take heart that we are in Christ and in Titusville, that Jesus has called us and He's called us to a place and to a people. Would we not be lukewarm about that? Would we have a passionate fire to see the gospel of Jesus affect lives, to touch lives, to change lives? That's what I want to see. That's, that's why I'm here. Yes. I hope that we would all say that's what we want. Jesus is, God has equipped us to be his people in Christ, and he's equipped us to be his people in Titusville. Friends, we're going to have a moment of response, and, and I want to ask you to respond in a few different ways. Perhaps uh, you hear this message, and you know that there's something that God has called you to do. You know that there's a ministry that God has called you to serve. Uh, I've got a great one. It takes a few hours on a Tuesday, and that's to help with our food pantry. We serve hundreds of meals every month to individuals here in our community. We always need help with that. It's an easy thing to do. We have lots of things. Perhaps God's calling you. There's something that you wanted to do that you've wanted to do. Come, speak with me. Pray about it. Let's see how we can better be in Christ in Titusville. Perhaps you're hearing this message and you have something that you want to respond to Christ to that His Spirit has convicted you of. Perhaps it's joining here to be a part of in Christ, in Titusville with us. Perhaps it's responding in salvation yourself. I want to ask you, I'm not, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I, I, I can do things. But if the Holy Spirit is genuinely speaking to you, would you respond to Him? Don't let this day go by. Don't let this moment go by. Yeah. Respond to Him. Be found faithful faithful in Him. Pray with me. Father, I pray that we not just be hearers of Your Word, but we be doers. I pray, Lord, that You would continue to help us to be not only in Christ, founded and rooted, but to be in Titusville, to be in this community, in, in this state, in this region, in this world, participating in, in praying for and, and resourcing and seriously desiring and being a part of people coming to know you. Lord, we live in dark times. Satan, Satan has an incredible hold on our culture. Lord, would the people of God rise up? Would we be empowered by your spirit and would we be impassioned by your love and would we be fervent, Lord, to proclaim this good news? And Lord, we trust and pray that you would be faithful 
faithful to answer our prayers and call people unto you. Lord, help us. Help us, even though we have a great legacy of being a church in this community, to continue with a new passion, zeal, and desire to serve you here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.